Welcome to the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast, where our goal is to connect listeners to the great outdoors with hosts Brian Hoffmeyer and Ben Brandell. I'm host Ben Brandell, owner of Meant to Be Outdoors, instructor of outdoor skills, and passionate about personal growth. I'm host Brian Hoffmeyer, wildlife biologist and avid outdoorsman. Welcome back to the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast. We hope you're having a great week. We are glad you are listening in. I am your host, Brian, and my co-host, Ben, is here with me. We are going to be, we're going to say maybe changing things up a little bit. We're going to talk about something we haven't talked a whole lot about. But if you have listened, you know that I, Brian Hoffmeyer, love deer. You do. I've said multiple times on the podcast, it's my favorite animal. I love to deer hunt. Uh, As a wildlife biologist, I've studied land management and hunting and conservation in in undergraduate school. I worked um, as a field biologist for several years, traveled the country, and and did habitat consulting. Really, really became passionate about stewardship of our land for our wildlife. So this is awesome for me to share. Uh, Where does your passion come um, for deer? Like, where did that really come from? Where did it start? Yeah. You know, I started hunting uh, white-tailed deer uh, when I was 11 years old. I remember I, I got the okay uh, to go when I was 10, um, but I broke my, f- no, I guess I wouldn't have, I guess I wouldn't have went, I wouldn't have went till I was 13. 13 would have been when I first got to go. I got the okay to go when I was 12, um, and I broke my femur like a month before deer season, mm. and uh, the doctor said that the recoil of a firearm would not be good for a healing femur. So I had to miss my first year of deer season. So I got to go when I was 13, um, just 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 hooked, I guess. I, you know, I believe as men that we are we're meant to hunt and to interact with wildlife. Um, we, if you read in Genesis, we've been given dominion over the animals and the land, and um, we we don't get to just eat from the Garden of Eden anymore. So we do have to go get. Uh, meat and I love that it it provides um, unhindered, no antibiotics, no medicine, no nothing. You get this clean, healthy, low fat, high protein meat for your family um, at a low cost. And as I long as you have freezer space to put it in, it's great to have. Right. That's. I also want to add in that the Bible makes it clear that deer is a clean meat. It was one of the animals that we were allowed to eat. It is on the list. It is on the list. Absolutely. Which is awesome. That's cool. And not to mention, it tastes really, really good. It I does. really enjoy the taste. Yeah, uh, my kids, my wife, everybody. Um, you know, my wife was not, she didn't come from a hunting family. Um, so it was introduced to her uh, by me, but she loves it. My kids love it. So uh, even my young toddlers ask for, can we have deer tonight? You know what? Absolutely. That's, <laughs> That's awesome to hear. Not there's, turn down. there's some families that say it's disgusting and they don't, they stay away from it. That, that's sad. Well, that's a whole i mean it can go you you're really getting into how it's processed right. i don't take it to processors i've i've learned to do that myself mm-hmm. um been blessed to work with people to help me really hone that craft and help me to understand how to make it the most healthy and the most flavorful the things that add the bad flavor that are in there what to cut out what not to cut out so um i would love to to teach that to some more people maybe that be a good video for yeah us we to will put up or something we'll, but, we'll do that uh, anyway, I love deer, so today we're going to be talking about fall food plots. So as a lot of people that manage land or love to hunt, uh, they are thinking right now as we're getting towards the end of summer and fall, what can I plant to make my hunting more successful and to make my deer healthier? And I really want to address that. 
and we're going to address it from the standpoint of large scale, uh, lots of money, lots of equipment, to small scale, just got an acre. I mean, really, there's no, there's no size limit, um, no equipment, hardly any money, and everywhere in between. There's options for pretty much everybody. Before we start, I just want to give thanks to everybody that is listening and to our faithful followers, people that listen every single week. We appreciate that so much because we put out quite a bit of content with two episodes a week, Mm -hmm. and I know there are lots of people that listen to both, so so thankful for that. If this is not up your alley with the fall food plots, um, I would ask that try to listen all the way through because you'll you'll probably learn. We're going to throw in some science and all kinds of stuff. You'll learn something from this even if you're not a hunter. and you probably know a hunter or somebody that would benefit from what we're about to share. So please share that with them. And we would be so thankful if you would do that. Absolutely. Please, please do. So let's jump right in, um, which what a food plot even is. And and that is an area that man has planted a specific chosen food for deer, turkey, wildlife, whatever their, their target wildlife is. But food plots are, for wildlife to attract them to nourish them there's different ones for each of those but if you're considering food plots or you are a food plotter the question i would ask before you ever put a food plot in is are you managing your natural habitat are you taking care of your home and that's that's kind of to to go back the the key and i think the core of this is stewardship that's something that you and i are passionate about we talk about stewardship love that word by definition is the job of supervising or taking care of something right such as organization, property, list could go on and on, economics, health. So stewardship. Things that have been entrusted to you. We, have, we the people, yeah. <laughs> we need to take care of a home first. And so that that's probably your backyard. Some of you out there may have multiple acreage, land you have, family land, but literally you can start right in your backyard. Start there. Yeah, even, even if you have uh, a, a half acre, three quarters of an acre, I'm not going to be able to list everybody's size of their acreage, but my point is it doesn't it doesn't take much to be able to implement some of the things that we're doing, whether it's just for viewing wildlife, hunting wildlife, or for raising wildlife. Yeah, and I want to repeat that. This isn't just for if you want to hunt your property. Yeah, it could be for somebody that loves to take pictures and wants to attract them to, to your property. And not just deer. If you, if you are managing properly for deer, you are managing for pretty much every other species of wildlife as well. And that's why I bring up habitat first because food plots are great. Food plots are going to produce more tonnage of food and nutrition versus just the natural habitat, forbs and grasses and those things that wildlife are going to to use for cover and food. However, the the uh, majority of land is going to be habitat, not a food plot, right? So you need to get that home that habitat in order before you really start thinking food plots. So manage your habitat first. Use food plots as a tool, as a supplemental tool to enhance it. Does that kind of make sense with what it does? I'm let's go. At? Let's let's go. Education, education. So we are educating today. Excited about hearing all of this and, and getting this out. But I am going to probably stop you as we go through because there are some words that you're probably using that I personally may not even know. Yeah. So yeah. real quick, what are Forbes? So forbs are going to be your little, small, broadleaf plants that are growing um, anywhere that sunlight sunlight is hitting in a glade or a prairie. All those small, little, green, salad-like plants. Good. Okay. That helps. Good. Not not Forbes Business 100. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is not, that doesn't correlate very well to, to wildlife. So 
We're talking food plots, fall food plots specifically, because depending on the time of year, the food plot you're planning, it does change a little bit. So we're going into fall. People have already planted or thinking about planting. Some people have years and years of experience of planting food plots and maybe just want to tweak it and hone it in. Other people are saying, you know what, I'm thinking about doing this, or maybe you're just listening to this and now it is the first time you've ever thought about it. Maybe by the end of this, you might give it a try. You really have to analyze the two types. So you need to first decide what type of food plot am I going to do. And the, the two that I'm going to say are hidey hole and nutritional. So people use different names for them. It really is going to refer to the size. Hidey hole is small. Your minimum really is going to be an eighth of an acre. Anything under an eighth of an acre, you're kind of wasting your time. An eighth of an acre, if you were to go map it out, is really small. It's, it's a very small area. Um, I don't know the exact dimensions, but it's not very big. So this may sound ridiculous, but you might as well just plant a garden and just have, that's a garden. Yeah. Yeah. That's anything it. less than an eighth of an acre is pretty much a garden. A garden. Yeah. Okay. A Good. backyard garden. So eighth of an acre uh, is going to be your hidey hole. And then new, what I call a nutritional plot is going to be something that you are actually providing nutrition to the wildlife herd, to the deer herd. Something that's larger scale. You know, you're talking half acre, acre, two, three, four. Some people have 10, 20, 30, 40 acre food plots. When you're getting into that big, you're really kind of talking people are going to harvest those for row crop to sell it to make a living. But as you're getting in and using acreage, whole number acreage, you're thinking nutritional. You're actually providing nutrition to animals that is going to help benefit their life. A hidey hole eighth of an acre is really just going to be an attractant, something that you want to get deer to stop at to be able to harvest them or just to get deer to your property, period, so that you can see them or harvest them. Okay, so you just said an attractant, something that you can get deer to stop at. You know, I know of some hunters, especially growing up, that, mm-hmm. you know, an attractant they're going to use is corn. They're going to throw corn out. They may even put out corn feeders. That, to me, is an attractant. That's what you're trying to do is to get those deer to stop. So is that what we're talking about here? Well, Corn is powerful when it comes to deer and deer hunting. Um, you know, kind of like we talked about in the in the duck episode, corn doesn't add a lot of nutritional value to deer. However, it's like a Snickers bar for them. I mean, they love it. It tastes awesome. Um, there's, you know, there's some myths around that. We might have, I might have to write down a myth Monday. But if you plant a hidey hole food plot and then 50 yards away you have a pile of corn, I'm going to let you guess which one they're going to go to. They're going to go to the corn right? every single time. So if you live in a state, and there are states, I have hunted in both um, states that are legal for corn and that are not. Where we live here in Missouri, it is not legal to put out corn. Um, with CWD, there's actually some states pulling away from that, so there's less and less. Um, but in a state like Missouri, where you're not legally able to put corn out during deer season, if someone does that, breaks the law, they are going to pull deer away from you and your property. So deer, um, if you live in a state that you can put corn out, you're probably better to do that than you are putting a hidey hole food plot because it's more powerful and the hidey hole food plot isn't really providing much nutrition anyway. And not to go too deep into this, but if you are in a state that you can feed corn Uh or throwing corn out, then you're saying you might as well because if everyone's doing that, then yeah. these deer are still moving, still coming through as attractants. They're not just being keyed in on one yeah. property. Interest- with, interestingly with enough, you know, having experience with hunting a lot in both types of those states, legal and not legal for corn, 
corn does lose its power in those states where it's fed everywhere because you right. have 20 spots on your property and so does your neighbor and so does their neighbor and it doesn't have the power that it has now you know if you if you are in missouri and you have five neighbors in a row that own property and four of them follow the the law and one doesn't they're obviously going to be the one that that pulled the deer okay good so now that we know that you know feeding corn not feeding corn that's not what we're talking about we're talking about right. putting in food plots growing a crop growing from them. the ground right right good not throwing out grain corn um as an attractant right correct right um and around cwd there's a lot of belief that that bringing deer into those small tiny little piles in one spot that's a way that that prion that causes it is spread they don't know a whole lot but that's why some of these states are going away from salt licks and corn and all that because they believe concentrating them in a tiny little couple square foot area that gotta, makes them sick gotta stop you again okay CWD real quick. Chronic wasting disease. Literally, their brain turns to a sponge. They waste away and die. Um, it's not a virus. It's not a bacteria. It's a folded prion that is found in the soil. Uh, tons and tons of money is spent on research of this every year and testing, and still not a ton of, of not a ton is known about the disease, and it's it's pretty scary. Right. Okay. So now okay. that we've identified that, we've talked about an eighth of an acre mm-hmm. food plot. Let's kick in yeah, where so we go from got there. Your hidey hole, eighth of an acre, nutritional, anything. We're going to say whole number acreage, one and up. Um, once you decide and know what you're what you're doing, you have to pick your spot, pick your location. Where are you putting this? I would suggest if you're doing a hidey hole, something small, you're trying to cut off deer on their way to water, on their way to bedding. Give them some reason to come to where you're at, to where you're hunting, so that you can harvest them. A lot of time, especially as deer age, whether you're hunting does or bucks, as they age, it is harder to get them to big open fields or easy areas for humans during daylight hours. So you want to get those hidey hole food plots so you can cut them off and harvest them during daylight. That's a great tool for that. So you need to pick that location and cut off from maybe from bedding into water. You want to put it in between there. So pick your location. If you're going nutritional, you're really going to, especially here in the Ozarks, you're just going to pick where you can. Something that's flat, something that's open, and you're really just going to go from there because deer are going to come find those bigger nutritional plots when they need the the nourishment. Mm, Okay. So once you've picked your location, if it's a new plot, I suggest you do soil samples. If you are an active food plotter, it really doesn't hurt to do soil samples every single year because you need to know the condition of your soil because if it needs amendments, meaning it needs fertilizer, nutrients added to it, or its pH is off, then you need to add lime to that as well because you are not going to grow beneficial plants if the soil isn't healthy. All healthy wildlife starts in the soil. Big antlers, everybody loves big antlers, right? That starts with the soil, believe it or not. So you have to know what's in your soil. It's an easy, inexpensive way to be an effective food plotter is to take soil samples. Okay. If I'm not taking care of my land anyway, Mm -hmm. so it's just doing what it does. It's out there. I've owned it. Now with this awareness of, of talking about why we should being stewards of that and, and the benefits of doing that, I don't have time to do soil samples. I don't have time to send that off, so I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here. Mm-hmm. Um, can I buy seed that's got a mixture of plants that's going to benefit me to where I don't even have to do that? I know that may hurt me kind of in the first few years, but I don't have time for soil sample. Can I, can I do it anyway? So there, there are plants that are, we'll call them resistant. They're drought resistant, nutrient resistant, um, pest resistant. There's things you can 
plant and then the idea would be that you leave them there so the organic matter builds the soil you're actually building soil but you have to go through this specific process that i'll really break down uh, a little later on in the episode here but to to kind of counteract you there the soil sample it doesn't take much time um and it really it really is cheap if you have a shovel if you own a shovel something that you can dig up a couple inches of soil you can do it. So say you have one acre that you're going to put in a food plot. It's never been in a food plot before. You're going to go out. Is this a, where I get to take my hat? Yeah. Okay, good. I love always hat. wearing my hat out. The simplest, cheapest way. You can buy a soil probe and actually go, but th- those are like $150 a piece. So we're going to say the, the simplest, most cost-effective way to take a soil sample. Get a shovel. Most people have a shovel. Even if it's a hand trowel, that's okay. A bucket, some kind of container to mix soil in and some Ziploc baggies. You're gonna go out to the area that you have picked and designated to plant. You're going to take randomized samples from, you don't wanna take them from the same spot because it may vary throughout your area that you're planting. Throw your hat, take your hat off your head, throw it wherever it lands, go right there, cut the grass or whatever vegetation is there away. You don't want any, any organic matter in it, it'll throw off your sample. You just want the soil. Take the first couple inches of that soil, put it in your bucket. Throw your head again, go do that. Do that several times, five, six times, depending on the area. Get a good sample of your whole area. Mix it up in your bucket, put it in a bag, and write, this is really important, write on the bag where that is. If you have multiple food plots, you do not want to get your sample mixed up. If you only have one, then don't worry about it. But if you have three, make sure you have them named. Food plot one, two, three, whatever it is. And then... You can literally send them off to your local NRCS office or your extension office through a state university, and it's pennies on the dollar. Some of them do it for free, and they're going to send you back and say, great calcium, low magnesium, pH is 6.7. Recommend, and they'll even recommend and tell you what you need to put in it, which is which is great. And what, what's the NRCS office? If I just type in nrcs.com. Yeah, it's a National Resource Google Conservation it. Service. Say it one more time. National Resource Conservation excuse me, Natural Resource Conservation Service. Perfect. All right. Yes. And everybody has a local, most counties have an RCS office. Okay. We'll, we'll bring them up again later, believe it or not, because they're, they they're there to serve you, to help you. So it's a, it's a good tool. Get your soil samples. Know what you need to do to your soil, because if your plants that you're growing, what, what having the correct pH does it allows the plants that you're planting there to actually take up the nutrients. So one, the nutrients have to be present through your fertilizer. Then the pH has to be right for your plants to take up the nutrients. If it's too low, they're not going to take up the nutrients. So if it is not nutrient-rich plants that you're growing, it doesn't taste good to the animals, so it's not going to be as attractive. It's also, obviously, if the nutrients aren't present, not nutritional to help them grow, right? So soil samples is a very important step it really truly is and you should do it every year should do it every year especially if you're just starting because you're probably going to have to make amendments if you're just starting very likely so clarify for me in case i'm wrong here Mm -hmm. what's in the air is nitrogen correct and that nitrogen needs to get into the soil yeah and so the types of plants that you plant will pull nitrogen into the soil yeah and we want better soil to have better wildlife Correct. If you if you follow um, some natural methods uh, that model what happened on the plains with buffalo herds, you will eventually 
Oh my goodness, I just broke a Myth Monday rule. Bison herds, I'm sorry, we don't have buffalo in North America. Good job, good job. With our bison herds, um, how they naturally built soil through their everyday action. If you follow and mimic some of that with mechanical man-made things, you are going to have healthy, nutrient-rich soil without fertilizing or doing pH. Mm. But to get started, you may have to add some stuff. What I mean by that, you know, when the bison were roaming the plains, there weren't people applying fertilizers or weren't people planting food crops, but the soil was really healthy. And so you can model what was happening there and do that in our current system using mechanical things like tractors and roller crimpers. Basically, the bison would run through the plains and because they're big one-ton beasts, they're stepping and stomping with their hooves on the vegetation and you're actually breaking the stems. So that plant is no longer growing, but it's laid over, basically creating a slow-release fertilizer as it's decomposing, but it's also a mulch holding in the moisture and all the nutrients. So with all the vegetation that they're breaking and killing just by wearing it down, no fertilizer was ever needed. And that's what created these layers and layers of great soil that all the farmers out in the plains still are using to this day. And we can do that mechanically now with a thing called a ro roller crimper, which unlike a traditional roller, it has like metal ridges on it. So as it rolls across your food plot, it's terminating it. You're not spraying it with a herbicide. It's just going to lay there as a mulch. And then you come through with a no-till drill, which we'll explain a little better later. And you're planting your seed through it, but you're still leaving the slow release fertilizer there of the organic material. So it sounds like that's not happening today. So so a soil test is very important. Exactly. You've got your soil samples. You know where you're putting your food plot. You know how big it's going to be. Now it's like, well, when the heck do I put my food plot in? I have no idea. Do I do it in August? Do I do it in September? What do I do? And the answer is, is that geographically is going to be different. You know, right now up north, it's it's already really cooling off. Here we, we still have, you know, 100 degree days. So Rather than picking a date on the calendar, you know, a lot of times in the South or around where we're at, people say Labor Day. I've got that extra day off. Let's use Labor Day weekend to get our food plots in. But picking a day on the calendar and just saying this around this time every year, we're going to plant our food plots. It's not really the best, most scientific way to go about it. The best thing to do is to find, you can Google the average frost date for where you live. Look at your calendar and back up about 45 to 60 days. In that window is when you really ideally want to be planting fall food plots. Now, that's only if it's raining. If you don't have moisture, if you're in drought conditions, you're wasting seed. For a seed to stay viable, it has to use its cotyledons, which is the nutrient that's in it, to be out there on the ground. Or you have pests, turkeys, squirrels coming and eating all the seed you put down. So you want, when you put the seed down, for it to germinate really quickly, and a seed needs sunlight and water to germinate. So I recommend at least a half inch of rain has already fallen and there's more rain in the forecast inside that 45 to 60 day window before you start putting seed in the ground because seed is expensive and so is your time and you don't want to waste either of those. Quick recap. Yep. Wherever you live, look up your average time of year when there's going to be your first frost. Correct. For us, it's about October, like second week of October, October 15th, we'll say. Right, so once, you've, once you find that date, you want to go back 45 days, and hopefully that's about where we're at now, yeah. roughly. So hopefully that's, if you're wanting to, to put in a food plot, you're ahead of the game, not behind. Mm -hmm. But then you want to, in that 45 days, start really watching the weather. Right. And we're looking for rain. If it starts raining 
whatever day you have available, it starts raining, can I plant right then as it's raining in the rain? Absolutely. Of course. There's actually some there's actually benefits to that when you're doing the broadcasting method. Or if I wait until the rain finishes up next day, that's when I want to get my food plot yes. started. Just just as long as, as moisture is there. The ideally you get a half inch of rain, you have a day of no rain, you plant that day of no rain, and then the next day you get another half inch of rain. You're gonna have really quick germination rates if, if you already have moisture present and then more moisture on top of it. Is it possible for if I have a half an acre or less, can I water it and, and start that by, by watering? Absolutely. If Good. you if you are able to get water to your food plot and you want to pay to have it watered, then absolutely. Awesome. Of course. Of course. Um, so once once you know when you're going to plant, the last thing I would say is as long as it's before the frost, it's it's really never too late. So if you're hearing this and you're like, oh, man, I'm, I've missed that 45 to 60-day 60 60 day window, but I still want to get it in. If you're still ahead of, of the, getting those consistent frosts, get some seed in the ground. It may not get as big and mature as it would have. Obviously, the longer it has to grow, it's going to get bigger, but it's still going to grow. Um, and there are some things that you can plant in food plots that will grow down into the 20s, into 28 degrees, like a uh, winter rye or something, winter wheat. Mm, that's good. So once once you know you've got some rain, you've you're picked your frost date, you're ahead of that, you're getting in the ground, then you have to decide what the heck do I plant? That's the most important thing about planting per season, summer versus spring versus fall, is the type of food that you're planting. So for fall food plots, the biggest thing that I'm going to stress is diversity when you hear that word ben what do you what do you think where am i going here when i say diversity i have it all caps with exclamation in my notes i mean what comes to mind is types shapes colors sizes and lots of them and lots of them right you don't want to plant one thing you know a a decade ago or, or maybe even longer there that was kind of the thing is that people were planting this is the best what is the best food plot plant and they're picking that one plant and they're planting all soybeans all wheat and, and gone are those days, and, and people are getting wiser, and research is showing that diversity wins every time. So when you're getting a fall food plot mix, if you're buying one from a company that's already mixed it for you, or you're going to go, you could go to the hardware store and make this mix yourself. You want legumes, brassicas, and grains, and you want them all present in your mix in a couple of each. So legumes are going to be your plants. Ben mentioned nitrogen. This is your free fertilizer, guys. Nitrogen is being fixed out of the atmosphere, pulled down to your food plot, and put into the soil for the other plants by legumes. Clovers, soybeans, peas, alfalfa, vetches, those kinds of things, you want multiple of them mixed in. Um, Benefits of that, you know, with clover, it is always one of the first things to stay, to get green. So I've even hunted places, uh, we were in Kentucky one time, and it was January, but it was 60 degrees for a, a stretch of a week, and there was green clover everywhere. So the very first thing in the spring to get green is going to be clover. So clover is a great thing to have in there to cover those really tough months for wildlife. Uh, things like soybeans and peas, in the fall when you plant them, they're not going to get mature enough to be left standing and offer winter food. However, they're going to grow really quickly and be the most palatable, easy to eat for these deer. And they're going to eat that stuff, keeping the pressure off everything else you planted. So allowing it to get mature and not just die from the browse pressure. Uh, brassicas, that's one of my favorites because I like to eat some of them too. So brassicas are like your turnips and radishes, those big, tall, white gopher radishes, uh, purple top turnips. They're great to eat. You can just grab them, cut them, eat them. 
but they offer food as soon as they start growing the greens. So turnip greens, they're gonna eat that. And then once it gets cold, December, January, and starts freezing and frosting, all the starches and those tubers and the turnips, uh, it turns to sugar. It turns to straight sugar, which is great to help them pack on fat and stay warm in the winter. And they also love it. They'll literally paw and dig to get these turnips up out of the ground. It's so beneficial for your soil to have turnips and radishes busting and building all these channels and breaking up your soil and, and, and uh, not allowing for compaction to happen. It's so beneficial. Tons of organic matter added back in there. So you want to add brassicas. So I'm thinking benefits here. You know, we've talked about the wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, a lover of survival and the study of survival and digging into that and the different sides you're you have your preppers the ones that are staying put you have your your people that are leaving well, i'm getting out of here going somewhere else kind of thinking about this prepper mindset of i'm staying home no matter what happens around me what's going on in the country yeah. i'm right now stocking preparing getting all the resources i can and putting in my home mm-hmm. um you know if if you're if you're that person or if you know somebody that's that's a prepper it sounds like food plots is not only awesome for the wildlife, but for you, you know, well, doing this in your backyard. I've, you know, I've, that's a good point. I've never heard of preppers emphasizing food plots or anything like that, but think about it. It's going to attract more food. So if you had to hunt for sustainability, it's going to be easy right there in your backyard because you're attracting it with food plots. And also if you're planting things like turnips and radishes, right. you can go out there and pick them and eat them. Correct. So you're growing food and attracting food. So maybe maybe we're going to be on the forefront of something here. You know, I mean just just think about the prepper life. Um if you're if you're not a prepper what that's really looking like is is you are stockpiling things in your home, but to take it a step further, if you're thinking long term, um these seeds can be purchased, mm-hmm. right? And and you may wait to plant them until you really needed it, but yeah. again, it's there for for those people that are are Absolutely. wanting to, to better well, their When you're talking about seeds that that third thing that third group of plants that i mentioned you should include is your grains Mm. your wheat your oats your rye. well you can actually let those seed out into the spring and now you can harvest those seeds and have them to plant for years and years and years to come if you were really getting into that prepper side but those oats and those uh those grain grasses they grow really well in cold temperatures so you're if you're buying your winter varieties of rye and wheat they're going to grow down to like 28 degrees so you're going to get a lot of growth. They're really palatable and easy to eat for the deer when they're young. Then as they grow up and seed out in the spring, when you if you go out and mow all that seed or they drop seed down, it is awesome for your turkey, all the birds, rabbits. You're going to benefit so much other wildlife by having all those cereal grains present. So now I've talked about what to plant. You can buy, like I said, you can buy from all kinds of seed companies that have their food plot blends, their fall blends. But what you want to check is what's in there. Make sure there's multiple lagoons, multiple brassicas, multiple grains. Once you have your seed, now how the heck do you get it in the ground? What method are you going to use? There are a lot out there. People are going to defend them in all kinds of ways. I'm going to tell you I only advocate and I only use two ways. And both of those ways involve never tilling never turning the soil um there it'd be a whole podcast episode to go into all the benefits of no-till and the disadvantages of tilling um but man tilling is it's almost like smoking cigarettes people that till some of them are very reluctant to let go of that even with the science behind it but just even the erosion stance alone that comes from tilling like 
you're losing all the nutrients, all the soil. You can't build soil through tilling, but with no-till, you are building soil, and it takes like 500 year, years to build an inch of soil, so time is not on your side. So we're going to talk about no-till drilling. Because in equipment. short, with no-till drilling in short, we're trying to build good soil Correct. to bring in deer, and by tilling it, mm-hmm. we're destroying Correct. the soil. Yes. So we're, we're counter productive there uh, it's so much damage and trauma to soil with tilling it, it, it tillage is like an earthquake a fire and a tornado happening all at once at your house that is what you are doing to your soil when you disc it and till it perfect i know that you're super passionate about that because i hear you talk about it a lot you teach that a lot when yes. you go out and and talk to landowners and, and doing some consulting with landowners that is one thing you talk about a lot so Let's move on from that, but the, the point of it is is that we don't want to ruin our soil. Correct. Okay. So no-till is your best option, and, and the best method for that is a no-till drill. Now, though some of you may have a no-till drill. Some of you may know somebody that does, or you may be saying, what the heck is that? But it's literally, you can you go through, you drill through the plants that are already there. So you don't have to wipe them out. If you already have a standing summer food plot, you just go right over the top of it, and you it's just digging a little teeny tiny inch deep furrow and laying the seed in it as it goes. So you're not turning the soil over. You're leaving everything in between your rows covered with other plant matter, which keeps the moisture, keeps the weeds down. I mean, there's, the benefits are endless. However, that is an expensive piece of equipment, and you also have to have a, an expensive piece of equipment of a certain size in a tractor to be able to operate it. So if you have access to a tractor, but you don't have access to a no-till drill, you can go to your local NRCS office. There we are again. Or there's a lot of conservation, um, I'm going to say agencies. They're, they're not state. They're private nonprofits. Um, soil and water districts, wherever you're at, you can reach out to them. A lot of them have rental programs, and they're so passionate about advocating for no-till that you're going to be able to borrow that or rent that for pennies on the dollar they'll charge by the acre but it's very very cheap so if you can get access to a tractor you can go rent the no-till drill if you can't get access to the tractor then obviously you can't drill and then that's going to be broadcasting it's still a no-till aspect it's cheap it's easy i've done that more than i've done anything just because it's so cost effective and broadcasting literally means throwing out the seed now you have to make sure your conditions is right I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this because this is probably going to be talking to how most people are going to do this to get started. What you want to look at, the area that you've picked, you want to make sure that there is 50% or less of ground cover. So if you walk through there, you want to be able to look down and see your feet at least half of the time. Okay. So when we're talking about this style, broadcast mm-hmm. seating, is this still in that 45 range? So we've we've determined our when it's going to freeze, we've mm-hmm. looked back 45 days or frost. I mean, right now, is this the time when we can still broadcast? Yes. Okay. And you, and you can broadcast from your eighth of an acre all the way up to, I did 70 acres in one day at one time. Okay. As much sweat and blood as you're willing to put into it is what you're going to get out of it. Good. So okay. broadcasting, you can buy a $50 bag that hangs over your shoulder that you can just turn the handle and it spreads it out. You can use the push ones that like you use for spreading lawn seed. Uh, you can literally get a cup or your hand and stick your hand in the seed bag and throw it and spread it out if you want to with no equipment, as long as you have the bag of seed. Again, it's just how much effort and sweat you're re- you're willing to put into it. Um, and that's sweat what you'll equity. Get out of it. Sweat <laughs> equity. 
good. That's right. Um, one thing with broadcasting is you have to have open soil. So like I'm saying, you have to have 50% or so open ground. So if you don't, that's when you get into your herbicides. A great thing with no-till drilling is you don't really have to use very much herbicide or no, no herbicide at all. So if you're against herbicide, then you really want to get into no-till drills. With broadcasting, you're going to have to use some herbicide because there's no way, if there's plants present, there's no way to get through them to get your seed to the ground because you have to have seed to soil contact. If the seed is not touching the soil, it's just touching another plant, it will never grow. It's not scientifically impossible for a seed to grow that's not touching the soil. So if you have 50% or less ground cover, you're good to go. Otherwise, you need to get a herbicide, spray off all the plant matter. Once it's dead, you need to remove it either with a rake or I've used my zero turn lawnmower before. So I've sprayed something and once it's dead, I use my zero turn and I just go blow it off into lines and making sure that I can see some of the soil. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah you can, I've used hand rakes on some of those smaller eighth acre ones. Um, usually have a blister or two when I'm done as well. Um, your seeding rate. So what, when you buy seed, it's going to say on the bag, you know, 70 pounds per acre is your seeding rate. That's really going to apply when you're using mechanical methods like a no-till drill. I always recommend increase your seeding rate when you're broadcasting because not as much of the seed is going to germinate as when you're literally putting it in the ground. Some of it's going to get ate. Some of it's never going to touch soil. Some of it's going to land on rocks, twigs, whatever. You got to increase your seeding rate. So it is going to cost you a little bit more money in seed. That's kind of the biggest downside to that. Mm. Some Again, with broadcasting, my biggest, biggest, biggest tip, if you are ready to plant, you have your area prepped, you have the seed, you're ready to broadcast, if it starts raining, get out there in the rain and plant your seed. You know your seed's going to get water immediately, and it helps tremendously with seed-to-soil contact. The raindrops will actually hit and bounce soil particles and your seed around, creating really, really good seed-to-soil contact. You're going to get a higher germination rate if you're willing to go out in the rain and plant your fall food plot if you're broadcasting. Hmm. That's awesome, man. I have done that before, actually. Uh, I think a hurricane was coming. We were getting the hurricane effect rains, and because of that, we were like, we're getting all the food plot seed in the ground. So until 1.30 in the morning, I was out there tromping around with my broadcast bag, spreading broadcast seed everywhere just because I knew the rain, how how powerful having that rain on top of it in that moment is. That's perfect. You know, I mentioned herbicides. You got to know what herbicide to use. So if you're trying to clear an area for a food plot and you're using herbicides, if you're wanting to clear everything out, if there's a mix of stuff in there, broadleaf plants and grasses and you want to kill it all you're going to go with glyphosate which is roundup which i know there's a lot of negative stuff around that now it's effective it's going to kill everything Um, what you should know is that it takes a week to a couple weeks to effectively kill it all and you don't want to remove it until it's dead otherwise it'll come right back because of the energy in the roots but do the proper safety things wear eyeglasses you can even wear masks if you want to respirators respirators um the biggest thing is to keep it off your skin wear some rubber gloves um, mix it according to the rates that it tells you to mix it keep it off of you don't ever drink it or anything like that and you're going to be fine not just being around it is not going to affect you when you are spraying it don't spray it upwind so that's blowing back into your face don't spray it to where it's blowing on things that you don't wait for a non-windy day Keep it off of you. Keep it out of the air that you're breathing, and you're going to be fine. It's not going to affect you. I've sprayed hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of gallons of it. So 
The other thing is going to be 24D. So let's say um, you're going out and you have an area that is just full of dandelions and plantains and these small broadleaf plants. Then you don't want to go for the glyphosate because there may be some things there that you don't want to kill. You want 24D, 2-4-D. That is going to kill your broadleafs. Now, if you have an established food plot that has, let's say, clover or soybeans or something in it and you're wanting to spray broadleaf weeds like dandelions or plantains, you want to get 2,4-D as in dog, B as in boy, 2,4-D-B, because it will kill the broadleafs but is not going to kill the legumes. It may set them back and give them a couple yellow spots, but they'll recover. So 2,4-D-B is going to kill all your broadleafs except for your legumes like clover or soybeans, things in those family. The last one's going to be clethodim. Clethodim. It's C-L-E-T-H-O-D-I-M, clethodim, and that is grass selective. So if you have an area that is all grasses and you want to clear it off for a food plot, get clethodim. It is only going to kill grass. It's not going to kill all your broadleaves. That even works for, let's say you mixed clover and wheat, and you want to keep your clover in the spring, but you want to spray the wheat off so it doesn't get big and tall and shade out your clover. You can spray clethodim on that. All the wheat will die, but the clover won't. It's kind of a, a cool trick. That's kind of expensive. It's like 75, 80 bucks a bottle, but a little goes a long way with that. All right. So that is something that I wanted you to talk about here shortly is cost because we are starting to talk about chemicals or I guess herbicides, right? right? And we've talked about tractors and plows and all these things. So definitely want to talk about cost, but you just talked about herbicides. And what if I'm a, a farmer, you know, maybe I have cattle, um, what kind of impact does that have on me and, and my land if I'm trying to, to do this food plot and I've got cattle or I'm, I'm farming? Well, they, they can definitely all work together. So if, if you want to be a, a wildlife manager, you like to hunt, but you're a cattle farmer or maybe even a crop farmer, there's definitely uh, things that you can do and consider to, to have both worlds because some people think that both worlds can't coexist, but they can. Um, but Ben, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, to have one thing, you usually have to die to something or to sacrifice something, right? So to be a cattle farmer and also have food plots, cows are destructive. They are. If, if you give them access to it, it is going to, they're going to destroy it. So you do have to designate areas that cattle can't go, whether that's with fence. There are fencing systems that will allow deer in, but keep cattle out, electric fences, but even sometimes they're going to bust through that. So the best thing to do is to actually truly fence it off. We all know that deer are going to hop a barbed wire fence, no no problem at all, and, and cattle aren't. So fence it off, keep them out. Now, you can benefit yourself to get some return if you're giving up land that you can't graze with your cattle. You can grow things that you can harvest to feed to your cattle. So grow things like... Uh, milo that can be taken for silage or, or wheat and rye that you can cut for hay after it's grown um, or even silage to give to your cattle. So it's benefiting the wildlife while it's growing and then you can cut it and feed it to your animals as well. So you're getting both benefits of that for cattle farmers. For crop farmers, a lot of people, you know, a lot of clients I've worked with in the past, they have land and to get some return so they can afford their land, they'll have acreage that they rent or lease out to crop farmers. A lot of crop farmers, that's how they get, unless they just have tons and tons of money, that's how they get all their acreages. They rent or lease it out. So if you're leasing land, you're a hunter and you're leasing some of your land to a crop farmer, the best thing you can do is to buy back some of that acreage. So they get to use the land, but you get food plots without doing any of the work. 
all you are doing, say, hey, in the back of field number two, I'm going to buy two acres from you, and they don't get to harvest those two acres in the back. So you have all this corn or wheat or whatever they've planted, soybeans in the back. They did the work. You get the benefit of it. Mm. That's so great. That's a yeah. really cool one as well. If you are a crop farmer, most crop farmers I know hate deer because it's destroying their livelihood and their living. The best thing that you can do is allow people to come hunt your land, especially if you're not a hunter. Invite people to come hunt. Uh, let people come hunt. If people are knocking on your door asking, let them come hunt because they are going to help you reduce some of those deer numbers because if you're planting crops, you are planting enough food to greatly increase your carrying capacity for a deer herd. So you're going to have a lot more healthy deer and they're going to damage your crop in your pocketbook so let some people come hunt them so yeah so let's let's talk cost then um i want to have an acre backyard i want to i want to do this thing yeah how much am i looking at you know i know we talked about sweat equity so that's that's where a lot of this is going to come in but but what are we looking at yeah, so let uh, acre. We're gonna say brand new food plot, never been established before. Right. You're gonna broadcast it because that's how most people start. Um, so it's covered. We'll say it's covered in. Uh, well, you know what? We'll say it's it's mowed. You mow it. It's lawn. It's covered in mowed fescue and and dandelions. You're gonna buy some herbicide first, which is gonna be glyphosate or the most generic name that everybody knows is Roundup. You know, the prices of that, it is just crazy how much they've increased. But you are looking at about $150 for a two and a half gallon thing. That's You should be able to do your acre with that. Once you have applied your herbicide and you have all that off of there, the, the, real, the real thing that's going to vary so much is the fertilizer and lime. Lime is cheap. Uh, some fertilizers are, some aren't. But if you're going to take your soil samples and apply that, that's going to depend on, on your results. But that is going to be a cost, whatever fertilizer or lime that you choose to put down. Uh, next is going to be your seed. So if you're going to go to some of these bigger seed companies uh, that have fall blends like I've described already mixed for you, you're going to buy it in a 50-pound bag, and that is going to be 80 to $90 a bag. And you're going to need 70 pounds for one acre approximately varies depending on the brand but about 70 pounds so you're gonna have to buy two bags of those so you're talking 160 to 180 bucks for your seed um and then what however you're gonna spread it so a, a decent bag spreader which is what i would recommend is about 40 or 50 dollars okay then you're gonna go out put it on the ground and and then you're done as far as cost so and the benefits i mean a couple hundred dollars at least yeah no that's awesome but that's a whole acre. I mean, that, that's pretty good. But I think the benefits would, would definitely outweigh the, the cost of the $200 if you if you have it to spend on that. Right. So just, just to round up, I want to say that this is a very – planting food plots is a very gratifying thing if you've, if you've never done it. To go um, and, and manipulate the land and then grow something fertile from it that is benefiting you and the wildlife. And then when you finally see deer or turkeys or squirrels, whatever is out there using it, and you're like, I did that. I, it feels really, really good. So if you have the funds, if you have the place to go do it, or maybe even help somebody that does have that, I definitely suggest that you give it a try. If you have questions or want some help with it, I would love to, to help you, so please reach out however you can find us through our email on our website, Facebook, Instagram. While you're on there, follow our page. If you're a fan of what we're doing with our podcast, please go to our Patreon link and, and become a member. We would love to have you support us. Also, 
please do the automatic download and get the notification on the podcast so you know when we get new episodes. We would love for you to leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. Maybe throw in some comments somewhere about what you want to hear. If you if you have a topic in mind that we haven't covered yet, uh, we would love to, to take some requests on topics as well. I hope that this helps you or is encouraging to you to go out and be a steward of your land. If not, please share it with somebody else. That is going to be it for this episode of the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast. Between now and our episode on Monday, we hope that you find some time to get outdoors and maybe harvest a deer. Thank you for listening to the Meant to Be Outdoors podcast, hosted by Brian Hoffmeyer and Ben Brandell. Please help us by subscribing. Also, follow along on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook.